1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in the glory. For a few minutes this evening, I want to teach on this thought, manifested in the flesh, manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. Amen. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your presence, your spirit. Thank you for your word. God, I'm glad that your word reveals to us who you are from front to back and all in between. And we look to your word tonight. God, with a knowledge and understanding to be solidified and anchored in our hearts that you are the one true God. And we celebrate not another, but we celebrate that you came yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. So, ready or not, Christmas is here. Nine days. If you're counting, my kids are. Calendar gets an X in it each day that we advance as they eagerly anticipate what next Friday beholds. And if you're in a frantic, there your favorite store has a sale for you. And only today, before they close. And if you get real desperate, Kroger has a gift for you. They would love for you to visit their holiday aisle. It's amazing that so much of the stress and the uh, frantic activity of Christmas has nothing to do with the meaning of Christmas. Now, don't stress out. I'm not going after Christmas. I'm not here to protest against your lights or festivities. I like Christmas. So I'm not going to preach against something I like, right? Just kidding. Preach the Bible. But Christmas is an awesome time of the year. But I do feel directed and want to remind us that the preeminent thing that we celebrate and the preeminent thing that we should be teaching our families is the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. I understand that sounds simple, but have you done that yet? Or is it still about ribbons and lights and gifts and holiday parties? And all of those things are part of celebration and in the right context are awesome and beautiful. But the preeminent thing is that Christ was born and to us was born a Savior, that God came himself. And he came to reconcile all of humanity back to himself. And so in light of that eternal truth, tonight I want to remind us of our oneness Pentecostal perspective of the incarnation. That God was manifested in the flesh. And to that end, let's kind of begin tonight by examining how it is that we approach the scriptures. How do we approach the Bible when we read the Christmas stories or we read any passage that we may be studying? First, as oneness Pentecostals, we believe, and I hope you believe, that the Scriptures represent objective and absolute truth, that we look to the Bible for truth. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of those Scriptures, that 
all of the original autographs as they were written. They were inspired by God word for word, not just the concepts. And that scripture is infallible. Secondly, we believe that all scripture is relevant and we believe that all scripture is authoritative. And we believe that the Old Testament is not just something there because they didn't know what else to do with it. But it is integral to the Bible as a whole, that all of the Bible is integral to our faith. Thirdly, we believe that the doctrines and the practices of the New Testament church are both authoritative and they are normative for the church today. They are the pattern that we follow. And therefore, because of that, we privilege those doctrines and those practices of the New Testament church. What does that mean? That means that if we have to choose, we will choose the preaching of the apostles over the councils and the creeds of tradition every single time. It means that if we have to choose, we will choose Scripture over cultural norm every single time. Why? Because we truly believe in sola scriptura. We don't just profess it. We actually believe it. So as it relates to who God is, and as it relates to the fact that He came Himself, the incarnation, orthodoxy for you and I is not what the church came to believe and then codified at some council. Orthodoxy for who God is, and orthodoxy for the incarnation, and how we view Jesus Christ centers on what the first century church preached understood and taught about who Jesus Christ was. And the first century church, the apostles, they clearly believed and they clearly taught that Jesus Christ was God expressly revealed to humanity. That from the beginning, God had a plan of redemption and He provided a blueprint of that ultimate plan throughout the Old Testament, that He would come Himself to redeem His people. The incarnation, Jesus being born at Bethlehem, was not God sending another. It was not one center of consciousness that was manifested from a plurality of consciousness. It was the singular, indivisible God of the Old Testament revealed to humanity in the man Christ Jesus. That is the incarnation. That deity and humanity were inseparably joined together in Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Colossians, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And can you say amen? Amen. Amen. And so our text this evening in 1 Timothy 3 and 16. Here, the Apostle Paul authoritatively affirms this understanding of who Jesus Christ is in his first letter to Timothy. He succinctly states what all of Scripture from front to back affirm. And that is, Timothy, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What? that God was manifest in the flesh. 
Paul is clear. There's no room for confusion. There were not three manifestations of the Godhead. No, Paul is clear. The singular, absolutely one God of the Old Testament was now manifested in the flesh. Amen? Further, when Paul writes mystery, great is the mystery of godliness. To Paul, mystery is not, a, is not something to be sobbed. It's not like reading your favorite Sherlock Holmes case study. It's not like watching your favorite police forensic show. Mystery to Paul is not, a mis- is not something to be sobbed. It is a mystery that has been sobbed and has been revealed. According to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament and other Greek lexicon, Paul's use of mystery in 1 Timothy 3 and 16 relates to something that has already been revealed. So when someone says it's just a mystery, that is smoke and mirrors that is not biblically based. It's not a mystery. God was manifest in the flesh. Mystery sobbed. That's who Jesus Christ is. So to Paul, there's no controversy over who God is. God came himself. The eternal took on temporal. The creator became the created. That's the wonder of it all. That's the mystery of it all, is that why God would love us enough to do that. Amen. That's why we adore Him. That's why we love Him. That's why we celebrate Him. God came Himself. But Paul is not the only New Testament writer who affirms that Jesus Christ was that. God manifested in the flesh. The Gospel of John actually has a lot to say about who Jesus Christ was, both in his deity and his humanity. John, the writer of the Gospel of John, he's writing to an audience or to people who are familiar with the Old Testament. He's writing to people who believe in the one true God, Yahweh. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He's writing to people that understand the covenant name of God, which is Yahweh, or He is, as God revealed Himself to Moses in covenant, I am that I am. They understand who Yahweh is. These are people who understand by in their Old Testament framework that Yahweh's name and Yahweh's indwelling glory was connected to the temple, that that was His dwelling place. And so to this audience... John declares in his gospel one simple thing, that Yahweh's dwelling place is no longer in a temple, but Yahweh now dwells in Jesus Christ. And when you read the gospel of John, through all the irony and through all the use of the references to the Old Testament, John is pounding people who were familiar with Jewish Thought, and that is Yahweh does not dwell in your temple. Yahweh dwells in the man Jesus Christ. He is God manifested in the flesh. Familiar to some of you, but John's prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was 
with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God or pertaining to God. All things were made through Him and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Immediately, any reader of the Bible recognizes that John is pointing all the way back to Genesis 1 and 1 and saying, in the beginning. It's not something that just Zachariah spoke of. It's not something that just Isaiah thought about. It's not something that David foresaw as a prophet, as Peter would call him. It's not something that was just about Abraham and just about, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to just go, let's just go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God was. (coughs) We know that in Genesis 1 and 1. Many of us can quote that. Hopefully you can. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. In our English Bibles, when we read God in Genesis 1 and 1, the word there is Elohim, translated as God. And it can be plural or singular and its general use. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't know how to read uh, Hebrew, but Dr. Daniel Seagraves does. He is a Hebrew scholar, and in his book he notes or in his book, Reading Between the Lines, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament, he notes that in Hebrew, the singular verb created demands and requires that the noun God be singular. So there's no question, and if anybody wants to take that line that, well, that's a plural God in Genesis 1 and 1, they don't know what they're talking about, and you can kind of cut their knees out from underneath them really quick, right? According to Genesis 1 and 1, the God of creation was one singular, indivisible God. In the beginning, God was, and God was absolutely one in the beginning. And so John says, when we talk about Jesus Christ, I'm just going to go ahead and go all the way back to the beginning and say, That God, the single, absolutely one, the creator of all, that God is Jesus Christ revealed to you and I. So he continues in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1 and 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice that word dwelt in verse 14. It means to tabernacle or it means to tent. And so John is asserting that Yahweh, the God of covenant, he no longer tabernacles in the temple, but he now tabernacles or dwells uniquely in Jesus Christ. And now they saw Yahweh for themselves 
because he ministered in front of them and healed them and preached to them and they witnessed his death, burial, and his resurrection. That is pretty clear. But that's not the only reference back to the beginning that we find in the New Testament. The first epistle of John also revisits this creative word, 1 John 1 and 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, the deity and the humanity of Yahweh. So we see that same theme in the epistle of John that we saw in the gospel of John that Jesus Christ is not a divine person distinct from the Creator. He is the Creator. He's not someone sent from the Creator. He is the Creator. He is God manifested in the flesh. Another example of the New Testament pointing back to Genesis 1 and 1 when talking about Jesus, the context of Jesus Christ, is found in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. There, referring to the Son, Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalms 45, 6, and 7 in verses 8 and 9. But to the Son, he says, now quoting, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Verse 9, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Verse 8 demonstrates the deity of Jesus Christ. He was God. He had the scepter of righteousness. Verse 9 demonstrates the humanity of God. He, He was the anointed one as we see throughout the Old Testament demonstrated in the New. Then the writer quotes in verse 10, Psalms 102 and 25. And not by coincidence, Psalms 102 and 25 is referencing back to Genesis 1 and 1. So once again, a writer in the New Testament explaining who Jesus Christ is references something in the Old Testament that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God created. Verse 10, you, Lord in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Just like the Gospel of John, just like the Epistle of John, now the book of Hebrews teaches one overarching theme that we need to build our lives upon. The singular God who created the heavens and the earth is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was God manifested in the flesh. Not another, not a junior, not a second person. He was God, all of God, the fullness of God manifested in the flesh. So now let's look specifically 
at two familiar passages about the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1, verse 18. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to read along. Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. If you're wondering what to read to your kids and grandkids between now and Christmas, this is one of them. Matthew 1 and 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph or engaged, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, those words are important, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, that's, that's the announcement, right? Matthew records to us what the angel said to Joseph. But now, Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, provides us an interpretation. So that all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. What prophecy did Matthew believe was fulfilled by the birth of Jesus Christ? Well, we find it in Isaiah chapter 7, where Isaiah tells King Ahaz, you can ask for any sign you want. God has said, ask anything you want to affirm and to validate that what I've just told you is from the Lord. Isaiah had just told him that God would give deliverance from the attacking armies of the Syrians and the Israelites who were attacking Judah. And so Isaiah says, you can ask anything you want under the sun to prove that I am saying, thus saith the word of God. Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign, not because he's humble, not because he's pious, but we know from the context of his life, he didn't want to serve God. He didn't want to obey God. He didn't want God in his business at all. But nonetheless, God says, well, that's okay, because I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And here's your sign, a sign that expands far beyond who you are, Ahaz, because it's now going to include all of David's descendants, and here it is in Isaiah 7 and 13. And he said, hear you now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, declares in his account of Gabriel's message to Joseph that Jesus Christ was the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that Yahweh would be with us. God manifested in the flesh. You don't even have to think real hard. Matthew interprets it for us. He's talking about the prophecy in Isaiah. Who's Isaiah talking about? He's not talking about a second God. He's not talking about a plurality of of consciousness within the Godhead. Isaiah is a monotheistic Jew. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God is one Lord. And Isaiah says, God is going to send a son, a son born of a virgin, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew says, that's Jesus Christ. Now let's examine Luke's account of the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary. So the angel talks to uh, Joseph, but prior to that, the angel talked to Mary. And Luke gives us that in Luke 1 and 28. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his sayings and considered what manner of greeting this was. And you would be too. Right? Yeah. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him, notice, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So the angel tells Mary, this, this, this guy's pretty special, right? He shall be called. He's going to have a throne. He's going to have a kingdom, and there will be no end of that kingdom. So here, again, in this season, you may have already read this passage, and your mind may already be there. Luke's account, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, is closely aligned with yet another prophecy that we find in Isaiah. Isaiah 9 and 6, many of you can quote it. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor, really that comma is inappropriate there. It really is like Marvelous Counselor. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Notice, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with justice, judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Like Matthew, Luke asserts that Jesus Christ is the promised son of the prophecies of Isaiah that God would forever reign on the throne of David. Luke says the same thing Matthew said. When he interprets the Christmas story, he interprets it through one lens. God manifested in the flesh. Can you say amen? So at this point, it's, it's important too that we understand and take note of the significance of name. The ancient Hebrews did not live in our culture. They did not, you know, go online to see what the top 20 names of 2015 are to not pick their kid from that list. Right? They didn't go to Barnes & Noble and strum through a book just to put a label on their kid that was cute, rhymed, or made sense. Or was just so different nobody would ever know how to say or spell their name. In Hebrew culture, a name was like a theology. They viewed a name as so thoroughly descriptive of that individual that it was their identity. And so to a Hebrew or an Israelite, 
it could be said in a very real sense that that person was their name. It's demonstrated in the Old Testament where God would rename people. Think Abraham. It's demonstrated in the New Testament where Jesus would rename people. Think Peter. So by his very name, Jesus, which is Yahweh saves, and Yahweh is what? It's the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. By his name, Jesus, dictated by proclamation of angelic beings, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. Yahweh, Savior, by that very name, we understand he is God manifested in the flesh. But Gabriel's announcement to Mary further makes this point by declaring that not only was Jesus Christ the marvelous counselor, not only is the name of Jesus the Prince of Peace, but Jesus Christ was also the mighty God and the everlasting Father. He is a wonderful counselor, but he's the mighty God, and he's the everlasting Father, and he's the Prince of Peace. He was the creator who became the created. He was deity and humanity inseparably joined. He was at once truly human and truly divine. And in Jesus Christ was the permanent coalescing of the human and the divine all together. He was God manifested in the flesh. He was Yahweh's Savior who had come to redeem and reconcile all people. Amen. That's the Christmas story. Buy the gifts, wrap them up tight, and have fun opening them. Throw a party and bring the family together, all in order. But preeminent in all of that, should be an understanding of and a teaching of and a celebrating of that we are not talking about God Jr. And this is not a second being in the Godhead. This is the time to teach our children who God is. God came Himself. God was manifested in the flesh. And if you get... Uh, you're backed into a corner. And if you're not sure you know who Jesus Christ is, then it would help you to start reading the Christmas story and to read it closely and to read it carefully and to look back into the Old Testament until you understand with the assurance of the eternal Word of God that Jesus Christ is the mighty God in Christ. It is all in Him. Amen. Our worship team is coming. It's Christmas and you're getting a bonus. We have sampled tonight, just to, and the youth are aware, in case you're panicked. We have just a few, but if you're bored, we can go on. Right. You don't mean that. The scriptures are replete to validate who we are and what we believe that God was manifested in the flesh. And what we've looked at tonight is but a small sample. And Paul summarized it succinctly when he said, Great is the mystery 
of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Yahweh, the God of covenant, has come Himself to now redeem all people into covenant with Him. So that you and I, regardless of our background, our heritage, our economic status, our past, we can be reconciled to God because God came Himself. He had a loving plan of redemption from the beginning. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was God revealed to man. And if you're able, in just a moment, I'm going to invite us to come forward as is our custom. And if you're a guest, please join us. And we're going to express love and adoration, wonder and glory to Jesus Christ. Not only is He our Savior, but when we say His name, that's who He is, Jesus. He is our counselor. He is our healer. He is our peacemaker. He is everything we have need of. And He is as close as the mention of His name, for He is His name. But before we come, I I really want to again challenge all of us. Maybe this is where kind of felt directed to do this in, in prayer and this because of this line of thinking. To make sure that we do not lose sight of the true celebration. And to make sure that we take time ourselves, young, old, single, married, employed, unemployed, to closely and carefully read the text and to see the wonder of the one true God creator of all who came to earth that as parents and grandparents that we're intentional God forbid that it's just thrown in as a couple minutes of grandpa reading a few passages before we go about our gift unwrapping but that we're intentional more than once for us in the the season of my kids it's the action bible okay It's got pictures. I like to read it. It's like a comic book Bible, right? Who can beat that? But we're we're going through the story. And what I'm intentional about, even last night, to the point that they're like, we got it, is that the God who created all things the God who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who destroyed Egypt with the ten plagues and parted the Red Sea and gave manna from heaven and water from a rock, tore down the walls of Jericho, the God who raised the dead, the God who made the axe head float, the God who healed Naaman, the God who kept Daniel from the lion's den, the God who was with the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace, that God that they know and that they celebrate, that God came Himself. Not another, not a second, not a a junior. That God, the God who was with David fighting Goliath, that God, that God came Himself. And as a parent and as a grandparent, God forbid our kids not truly understand that truth. With is our responsibility. If you're able, let's stand.
this evening. This is your Christmas gift. Enjoy it. But before you leave and enjoy it, we're going to come together. And we're going to take some time because we have time, if you're able, to just say, God, I adore you. I worship you. God, I'm full of gratitude. God, I'm thankful. Because I didn't deserve for you to come. But you came down to me so that I could be your son, so that I could be your daughter. That we celebrate his birth because he was manifested in the flesh for you and I. Amen.